Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website. And we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the Sunday Times' foreign correspondent, Christina Lamb, who has reported from wars all over the world and whose new book is addressed to one of the most horrific aspects of war. It's called Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women, and its prime subject is Rape as a Weapon of War. Christina, welcome. I mean, this is, I don't know whether we should issue a sort of trigger warning or whatever, but you know, this is some serious stuff. How did you, you know, what what made you start thinking this needs to be a book? I mean, you've reported obviously a lot of this material. Well, so I've been doing my job for 33 years and I've always been really interested in what happens to women in war and I always felt it was underreported that we focused much more on, on the sort of bang bang and the fighting which tends to be men, much less on the people trying to sort of keep life together during war which, you know, the women trying to feed, educate, protect their children so I've always been really interested in telling that story but of course terrible things also happen to women in war and it seemed to me in the last four or five years that I was seeing more and more brutality against women and more sexual violence. It began to disturb me that why was this happening so much? I mean the stories were just so horrific and I was coming across these things in place after place. And I mean as you acknowledge in the introduction to the book you know there is a long a long history you know there's this sort of idea that you know Rome was founded on rape that the yeah you know the rape of so women there's the you know story of the Trojan why is it something that's that's now as it were sort of getting worse? Well, that's what intrigued me, really. And a lot of people, when I said I'm writing a book on this, said to me, well, there's always been rape in war. But that didn't seem to me to be a reason to say, well, that's okay. (laughs) I mean, it is a war crime. It has been since 1919. And just because it has happened throughout history doesn't mean that it's something that we should just say, that's okay. But what it seemed to me in the last few years that I was seeing was rape really being used as a weapon of war. So not just sort of rape happening because of the chaos of war and soldiers helping themselves to to women as a kind of part of the victory, but actually being ordered to go and rape women for specific reasons, whether it was to try and change the ethnic balance or to terrorise communities. And so... I started really, what really made me aware of this was the Yazidis, which I first came across covering the refugee crisis back in 2015, 2016, when so many refugees came into Europe from Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. And in a really kind of spooky place on a Greek island called Leros, it was this ruined mental asylum. And I met 
this group of Yazidis in in there, and I, they were mostly women and children, and they just told me the most horrific stories that I had ever heard of how women had been taken by ISIS fighters as sex slaves and taken to places like the Galaxy Cinema in Mosul, which was a market for for girls, um, where they would be split up into groups, whether they were considered ugly or beautiful. And then the fighters would come and um, feel their breasts and their hair and touch them and decide which one they wanted to take and buy. They also showed me video of girls being burnt alive, and I was horrified. And they told me that some of these girls had escaped and been rescued and were in what they said was a secret village in Germany. So I tried to track that down. It turned out not really to be a secret village, but to be a group of shelters, in mostly in the Black Forest, in remote places. But more than 1,100 girls had been it's taken there. That's right. And this one state in southern Germany had heard what was happening and had made a decision to rescue and bring a whole group of these girls, which was quite astonishing. (laughs) And so I went and met some of those girls in Germany. And your your narrative, you know, goes as well as going through a history, you know, you go from the, I mean, I've made a list almost, but you go to the Rohingya, genocide in Myanmar, Yazidis, you've got you know, ISIS again, you've got Boko Haram, you've got sort of historical examples. As they string together, as you kind of go from one to the other, do you feel as if what you're seeing is different iterations of the same story? Or, you know, sort of something where you can start to make distinctions between what's happening? Well, I mean, there are sort of variations between countries and cases, but there are a lot of similarities. And you asked me why I wanted to write a book about it. I mean, I I became really obsessed in a way because I couldn't understand why after the Yazidis then I was also reporting a lot from Nigeria about like the Chibok girls who were taken and then finding that thousands of girls had been taken by Boko Haram terrorists and forced to be what they called bushwives and also uh, they tried to impregnate them because they wanted to create a new army of jihadis and then I was also reporting on the Rohingya who were being attacked by the Burmese military and into Bangladesh and all this was in within a few years and each time there was sort of international outrage but nothing actually happened and I couldn't really understand why this kept being repeated and then it became quite clear that actually there was no legal action about it. people were doing this with complete impunity and if you start going back through quite recent history um, like from the Second World War onwards I mean nobody was uh, tried over what happened and um, as we now know maybe two million women were raped in Germany by Russian soldiers and we did have international tribunals after the Second World War we had the Nuremberg Tribunal we had Tokyo the Japanese of course also abducted lots of girls and kept them as what they called comfort women which were basically also sex slaves And again, you know, there was no trials or prosecutions after that. 
So, you know, if this is just going to keep happening through history and there's never going to be any legal repercussions, then you can kind of see why it's not stopping. Is it that it's simply seen as less important? I mean, why... I mean, again and again, when you're talking about the more latterly the kind of way that legal proceedings are brought, you know, the rape charges get dropped. They're saying we're concentrating on the murder, we're concentrating on the torture... Yeah, absolutely. It's not seen as important. I mean, I even recently I was in Iraq where the trials of ISIS fighters are going on and they're all being tried for terrorism. And I asked the chief judge, what about haven't any of these taken Yazidi girls as sex slaves? And he said, yes, lots of them. So I said, well, why aren't you prosecuting for that too? And he just almost laughed at me and said, but why does that matter? They killed people. And it's just this sense that somehow the rape is something that doesn't matter. And yet one woman after another who'd been through these most awful and, I mean, really horrendous torture and rape, they all said to me that they wished that they had died, that this was worse. One of the things you make clear in the book is that in some cases, you know, the the rape is being used in order to, you know, as a sort of adjunct of genocide, that the idea is that women are sort of doubly punished, you know, their humanity is taken from them because they become outcasts in their conservative communities originally. I mean, is that a, is that a sort of knowing thing that's, that, that's being done? Is that sort of being commanded from on top, generally? Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the hardest things when you meet some of these women having gone through all of this, then for their own communities not to take them back. And and definitely, if you look at places like DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, which has a huge amount of rape, it's been described as the rape capital of the world, there... Clearly, because mostly it's about militias wanting to empty villages so that they can take over the areas and um, for territorial reasons, but also to have access to minerals there. In that case, you know, they really want to cause maximum kind of social disruption in the villages. And so they've done things like, you know, rape the wife of the priest. So people then think, well, if even the priest's wife is being taken and raped, then nobody is is safe and completely destroys the community because the families won't take the girls back, then they have no way of making a living and you know they are really left in a, a a bad situation and all the families are destroyed and also i think you know rape of children is another way of sort of saying you know that's a complete humiliation too of the the man that you can't even protect your your children there's a, a sort of touching come horrific thing in the history of the bangladesh the operation searchlight the um, you know attempt to kind of subjugate Bangladesh as as became. And in that story, you say there was this very enlightened politician who, when he came to power and, you know, the liberation struggle was won, said, look, we have to honour these women, we have to look after the victims of rape. Could you yeah, so, tell me what happened so there? So Sheikh Majib, who was the independence leader in Bangladesh, who during the war in 1971 with Pakistan, which led to 
to the creation of Bangladesh from what had been East Pakistan, a huge number of women were raped and in, you know, really like tied to banana trees and gang raped and were often raped in front of their family members, which again is all about this sort of deliberate humiliation. And so when Sheikh Majib, when Bangladesh became independent and Sheikh Majib became the first head of the independent Bangladesh, he said these women are our heroes and he called them Birangonas. And he declared like a special status for them, which and so they were sort of getting help and centres opened for them. But unfortunately, he was assassinated and then there was a sort of a more Islamist government, which was some of which had collaborated with um, Pakistan fighters. And and they ended all of this. But the problem was these women then had been identified because they'd all been initially regarded as heroes. So people knew who they were. And so actually what Sheikh Majib had done, which was appeared very enlightened, ended up sort of making things worse in a way for some of these women. And it was terribly sad meeting these women who, you know, these terrible things had happened to them in 1971. And all these years later, they're still kind of living in the shadows. Um, local people refer to them as women who, spare, who stare into space because they're not accepted back into their communities and they've really struggled to make a living. But I met this amazing uh, heroic woman who um, had tried to help them and set up centres and clandestine centres and also gone into to villages trying to persuade people look these these women are, are the victims they're not and this is I mean the issue with rape generally it's one of the few crimes where often the victim is seen as stigmatised rather than the perpetrator and that particularly in these cases and you know we're talking at, at the time of the Me Too movement we've just seen Harvey Weinstein being convicted and people talking about that being the age end of the age of sexual impunity and that's all great but actually in these places that's not the case at all it is almost impossible to get justice in most of these countries because the very people carrying out the rapes of the people that are running the country the state army or police or local militias who are terrorizing people how much do you think the issue of reporting and the way the way we report, I mean, I, I get the sense that in some ways this book is an act of address. You know, you're saying wars have been reported in this way and this is a whole kind of shadow side of them that we haven't looked at. Is that something that's... I mean, is it that we have more female war reporters? I mean, I think I could probably name more female war reporters now than I could name male war reporters off the top of my head. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, when I started out, I was very unusual. Now there's lots of women, particularly in the, the Middle East, and that's great, and that has made a lot of difference. But I... Yes, I do feel that we haven't reported. I felt frustration that I couldn't get some of these stories in my newspaper, that my editors were mostly male and found them a bit kind of distasteful stories that they didn't want to think about. But just because, you know, we might not want to think about these things doesn't mean that we should ignore them and nothing will change if we don't. And these women are incredibly brave to tell their stories and the least we can do is listen and try and do something about it. And 
one of the things you tried to do rather heroically was was to talk to some of the rapists. <laughs> it didn't really work as well. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't completely work. No. Um, I mean, what, that sort of begs the question, or at least was an attempt to answer the question: What do you think is going on here? Because I mean, I, you know, and I'm sure most, you know, supposedly civilized men will read this book, and the violence is so horrific and so sort of you know, also cartoonishly, insanely over the top. You know, there's, a, there's sort of more torture and aggression directed towards women than you think mostly towards men. In, in this yeah, war. of course it does happen to men too, and I yeah. didn't, I just mentioned that because I think that's a whole other book, you know, and yeah. that's even less talked about. That's more of a taboo, sexual violence against men in, in places and, you, you know, in things like prisons in Syria. But, yeah, of course, writing this book, it, it kept making me think, how can men do this? What kind of pleasure could there be from doing these, you know, tying a woman to a banana tree and sort of nine soldiers one after another or attacking her and maybe doing it in front of her children while they're screaming and also, you know, using various kind of torture implements, uh, instruments as well. Does that thing become almost a kind of cliche? I think it's Susan Brownmiller's formulation saying that rape is not about sex, it's about power. Do you think that's true? Well... I think in this case, you know, a lot of these men had been ordered to do this. I think there was a certain amount of, you know, you're part of a group and other people are doing it. So if you don't do it, that questions are asked. But there are other things too. For example, in Nigeria, Boko Haram, who have taken thousands of women. Now, those young men would have to pay a... Dowry to have a woman in northern Nigeria, and they don't have money, they're mostly unemployed. And so, this is a way of them getting women without having to, to pay anything. And so, there are sort of other things going on too. And in, actually, in that case in Nigeria, those poor women had been so you know, they'd been taken by Boko Haram. Often they were young, they were school kids like the the Chibok girls, but I met girls, you know, 13-year-old girls who'd been taken into the bush and kept and forcibly married. And eventually they'd either escaped or um, Nigerian military had rescued them. But then sometimes those soldiers had raped the girls again then they'd been taken to a camp where their own community wouldn't take them back so they were ostracized and the only way that they could actually survive was to have sex with the camp officials so they were being victims over and over again it's just unbelievably sad to talk to these women and you can some of them say they wish they'd stayed with the Boko Haram men because although they'd been forced into that that it was better than what had happened to them since. If you talk to the mother of one of the disappeared and yes. but I mean not you did do talk from others that disappeared in Argentina, but also the mother of one of the children who was taken by Bukaram and you there's this photograph of her, Dorcas. And she's was there a postscript to that story? Did, did she well, show up again? She's, you, so Dorcas was one of the Chibok girls. She was a sixteen year old girl who was um, taken with those 
276 from their school that night in, in April 2014. And various videos have appeared of them since in grey hijab and with the Boko Haram leader kind of ranting and saying, I'm going to marry off all these girls. And some have been released in the last 18 months, two groups, but this lady, Esther, her daughter, has um, not been released and she's seen her in the videos, So, which is a kind of double-edged sword. It means she knows she's still alive, but she's still there, captured. And actually, she was the one that spoke in the most recent video saying that they don't want to come back, but she was standing next to a... Boko Haram fighter holding a Kalashnikov so you know how much that's really genuine what she thinks and I mean one of the ways that my job has changed in the 33 years I've been doing it is the communications you know when I started out there was no internet no mobile phones we used to have to file either dictating copy or by telex which not many people remember anymore and now you know we stay we are easily in touch with people through mobile phones and WhatsApp and Telegram. But that also means that we stay in touch with people in a way that we didn't used to. You know, when I used to write things in places and then go away, the only way I could stay in touch with those people was to write them letters, which was kind of unlikely. And also, you know, those people might move and so they probably wouldn't get them. But now I stay in touch with just about everyone I interview, which is great, but it also makes you feel responsible because sometimes you're the only outlet to the outside world. And so they've told you their story and they think that that's going to change things and then it doesn't and you feel really responsible for that. So that was another reason to do the book really, to say, you know, we can't ignore these stories. Um, I want to put them out there together to show how widespread this is and how brave some of these women are coming forward. You know, I hope it makes a difference. Yeah, the story of the Tribok girls seemed to be actually a sort of almost perfect example of the limitations and advantages of the media age, wasn't it? Because, you know, there was that hashtag that went around the world to bring back our bring girls. Back our girls and, yeah. and then, as you say, you know, kind of the caravan moved on, didn't it? Yes. I mean, well, first of all, you know, this happened one night and it was a... Uh, on a wire story and actually I mentioned it to my foreign editor who wasn't interested (laughs) then so it was about two weeks after it actually happened that suddenly it's kind of bizarre a a Nigerian lawyer had been at a conference in a southern city called Port Harcourt and he was packing to go home and the TV was showing live streaming a, a conference nearby a woman was speaking who had been education minister in Nigeria, Obi, and she mentioned what had happened to these girls and, and, and said that the government must do something, bring back our girls. So this guy was very into social media, so he immediately tweeted, bring back something or other, and hashtag bring back our girls. And somehow a producer in LA saw this tweet and then and she had lots of followers so she retweeted it and suddenly it was everywhere and you had people like Michelle Obama doing these selfies holding up the Bring Back Our Girl slogan and David Cameron and all sorts of people and it became this huge um, issue and story and, and it so says that Chibok could have been anywhere yes. that, that 
all these stories you're telling, any one of them could have had that. Exactly. And it was because of that hashtag. And so suddenly we were all like dispatched to go to Nigeria. And there was people from all over the world, Japan, America, Sweden, all TV um, antenna and satellite dishes everywhere. And for about two weeks, I would say it was like the biggest story on earth. And then almost overnight, everyone just lost interest and packed up and went home. And that was it. And the parents like Esther that I had mentioned had got excited because they thought, well, this all this international attention means that the girls will be found. And the Americans had sent in like eyes in the sky and, and planes. We had sent in people. And so they thought, well, the Americans can even see goats on hillsides in Afghanistan. They must find the girls. And so they were rather astonished that they weren't discovered. You quoted, I mean, that was curious because you quote a guy who was very involved in this saying, look, I can see these camps on Google Earth. Yes, you know, of course the Americans can see them. Why, you know, just a big question, why, why did they not then well, descend? Was there the fear that boots on the ground would make it worse? Yes, and def- I mean, nobody really wants to risk their own soldiers, I think, to bring back these girls. And they did, I found out, locate one group of about 80 of the girls quite early on. But the problem was the girls had been split up. So the feeling was if they went to try and rescue those 80, first, they, the, that could also be disastrous because that could lead to fighting and the girls could be hurt in the rescue. I mean, we've seen that in many places with just, you know, one or two hostages and people have ended up dying in rescue attempts. This was a large number. But if you went and rescued those 80, the fear was that the Boko Haram would then take reprisals against the rest of the girls elsewhere. So it was... And then I think you said the Sheikh would be back on social media saying, you tried to rescue your girls, look what I've done to the rest of them. Yes. So, but it didn't seem to me impossible. And also... The terrible thing about this, two things. I mean, first of all, we made all this fuss about these girls. And then actually, when I went to Madugari and places in northern Nigeria, I discovered that thousands of girls were being taken. This was just, which was why I think the Nigerian government were a bit baffled by all the reaction. So was it like essentially a global epidemic of virtue? (laughs) I think so. But also a little bit, perhaps like we talked about Sheikh Majib in Bangladesh, trying to help those women and then actually sort of branding them. Because we focus so much on the Chibok girls, I think it's made it hard for them to be released because the they've become like the crown jewels, if you like, of Boko Haram. They have this, you know, they're the most important thing that they control. So they don't want to give them up without something very considerable in return. The whole thing's kind of unhelpful. Speaking of help and what we could... I mean, you know, a lot of the argument of the book, I think you say very early on, Look, you know, there's only actually been one prosecution or conviction for rape in the ICC since it was set up, and that was overturned two years later. (laughs) I mean, what can be done that isn't being done, and sort of what has been done? I mean, what are the because there are wonderful slivers of hope that go all the way through this book. You know, individuals. You know, the doctor who works with rape victims. You've got this. There is this extraordinary woman, Branka Hachetit, who's you know, working with the victims and setting up this. You know, where, where are we now? Where where do we need to be? So there was two things that I found that one was that there's not 
any sharing of information between these places and there isn't like one organization dealing with sexual violence in conflict so lots of aid agencies now look at it in specific places and have um, people working on it but there isn't one organization dedicated to it so I would go to Bosnia and meet people like Dr Branka who would talk about all the different things they tried to help the women recover and then eventually come across different things and so for example she found that actually growing things helped them a lot and growing roses uh, making they produce tea and it's a way that they can have some income and self-sufficiency because often we talked about the families not taking them back um, also that that seems to help them a lot and then I would go to other places where they've also discovered that but that's taken them another 10 years to, and you kind of feel like if only people had shared the information then it wouldn't they would have known that at the beginning to try that rather than trying all these different other things so there's that but the absolute main thing is it legal action and that is very difficult because in a lot of these countries the legal system doesn't work it's corrupt the police you need to gather evidence the police are not effective may also be corrupt may also be involved in this so I think that there needs to be a lot more international focus on trying to do something about it and maybe have an international team that goes in when something like this happens like the Rohingya when you have a, a wide scale because also the other problem with the International Criminal Court is not everyone signed up to it also you have political issues so the UN Security Council China blocks any attempt to take action against Burma on the Rohingya on the ISIS Iraq is not a member of the International Criminal Court so it's very complicated but we are seeing a bit more success now on local courts than we used to, particularly in, for example, Latin America. So Guatemala, there's this amazing case with these 15 grandmothers who were taken by the military during the civil war in the 1970s and 80s, and but they've kept fighting, and these, um, and it's often these women who are often illiterate from these rural villages but who um, just keep on and they had to testify I think 22 times about and can you imagine having to tell this story over and over again but eventually a few years ago in 2016 they succeeded in getting convictions and you know and that was a huge victory so there are a few cases also people were trying to be a bit more imaginative so you had like Philippe Sands and others involved in working with Gambia to take Aung San Suu Kyi and Burma or Myanmar to to court in The Hague for what they've done against the Rohingya now it's they It's extraordinary to see Aung San Suu Kyi I mean I know I was a reversal there. of reputation I, I you mean, know I'd grown up sort of seeing her as a icon you know sort of beacon of human rights and then to see her there defending what the military had done and Philippe Sands and others had you know read these absolutely horrendous things of what had happened to the women and then Aung San Suu Kyi just standing there with no expression just the occasional flicker of her eyelashes and all these flowers in her hair and then when she spoke she said well may, you know there may have been some I can't remember the exact word she used, but like transgressions or, or excesses. But she didn't talk once about the rape or sexual violence. And, you know, that was just really 
disappointing. How, and do you, how do you read that? I mean, just... I think, you know, this is all about domestic politics. And, you know, initially, because... I, like many people, I suppose, didn't want to think that she could really be supporting what was happening. I thought, well, the military still really control everything, even though she's de facto head of state since the last elections, and that she's, you know, not able to do anything. But actually, you know, there she was standing there defending them in an international court. That's a bit more than just turning, you know, not turning a blind eye. or That's, you know, really aligning herself with what happened. So... You know, I think that actually, domestically, unfortunately, that there is a lot of support for trying to, for doing things against the Rohingya, and and she is playing up to that. And we're seeing all over the world these you know nationalist um, leaders and promoting causes of majority groups. Seeing that in India now, and so. I think it's, you know, more of the same thing. But I do, just to go back to it, I do think that there is hope from local courts. But what this unusual case of going to the, so not the International Criminal Court, but the International Court of Justice, which Gambia went to to take um, Burma to court over this, the problem is they succeeded. They got a ruling that, that um, what they were doing was part of genocide and action needed to be taken but what action actually they don't have power to do anything so I think there really needs to be a whole new kind of discussion of what can be done what actually how can we strengthen local courts maybe there should be mobile courts should there be a team of international investigators who go in as soon as something like this happens and start collecting evidence well you spoke you you it seemed again towards the postscript of your book. You talked to William Hague, I think, and yes. you know you talked about which I think a lot of people went. Oh, it's just an eye-catching kind of stunt because he gets to meet Angelina Jolie. But actually, I got the impression you thought that the initiative he took with Angelina Jolie when he was foreign secretary was pretty effective. Well, he genuinely cared about the issue, and he said that he made sure that in every bilateral. He raised the issue, so people were a bit surprised, but it meant that they had to think about it and think of it as actually a national security issue that affects everybody. So I think that um, it certainly was the first time any foreign office anywhere in the world had actually created a department to look at this and say this is a major issue. Sadly, since then, subsequent foreign secretaries, uh, not least our current prime minister, have been much less interested in this issue and have cut their um, department. So it's now only three or four people. So they're not really in a position to to do very much and I don't believe that you know now when Dominic Raab goes around the world meeting people that he raises this issue I think that you know particularly he has other concerns <laughs> such as Brexit and, but I you know I it did make a difference having someone of the stature of the of William Hague of then foreign secretary um, saying this is important we can't ignore it. And I suppose and I just have to ask, you know, having read this book, I think you say in the postscript, you know, you know, thanks for sticking with me because it's it's pretty hard reading. I mean, God, it must be hard writing. What's the effect, you know, what's the effect on you of as a reporter? Well, it, immersing yourself in this stuff. It was by far the hardest book I've ever written. 
but I'm doing this because I want people to know about it and the women that I interviewed what I went through writing it was you know nothing compared to what they'd gone through and so I'm trying to give them a platform the way I wrote it I didn't paraphrase what they said it's very much their own testimony which sometimes perhaps makes it less readable than if I'd done it more as a narrative I thought it was really important that it was their stories being told as they told them and how they wanted to tell them and so you know that is why I've done it and yeah of course you know these are terrible things and you think about it a lot and I I'll never forget many of these people I mean think for example the 16 year old girl I met in Germany a Yazidi who told me that the worst night of her life was when the ISIS judge who had captured her brought back a 10 year old girl and raped her in the room next door and she listened to the girl crying all night for her mother you never forget hearing something like that Oh, may it do some good. Christine Lamb's book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, is out now. Thank you, Christine. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.